Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon the generous financial contributions of our listeners in order to continue bringing Fighting for the Faith to you. Uh, would you please uh, support Fighting for the Faith financially by joining our crew or sending in a donation to uh, support us financially? You can do so by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. Click on the Join Our Crew button. That's a mere $6.95 a month. Or if you'd like to make a flat contribution, you can do so by clicking on the Donate button or making your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and sending it to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. Thank you for your support. It's time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith. Thursday, July 22nd, 2010. Wow, have we got some stuff to cover today. Kind of still working through some of our progressive stuff. More details on that in a minute. Thank you for tuning in. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Rosebro, and I am your servant in Jesus Christ. And this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which is to help you to think biblically and to help you to think critically and to compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. There, You know, if, I don't know what it is uh, that people seem to think that their ideas, their subjective ideas somehow... Um, uh, that they that they um that they're on par with scripture but what really they're not and uh and so we got to compare what people are saying in the name of God to the word of God and and really do the job of of a Berean let God's word speak let it speak on its own terms God is capable of communicating i mean if he can make the world in 6 days if he can raise if if you raise Jesus from the dead, and by the way, Jesus is God in human flesh, uh, then uh, then I, he's more than capable of using words, you know, things like nouns and verbs and adverbs and adjectives and prepositions in order to communicate truth regarding himself. And the truth that he's communicated is true and it's eternal and it doesn't change. And uh, we live in just dangerous, dangerous times. And uh, and so we do the uh, the hard work and the politically incorrect work of comparing what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. And um, today's program, I guess, kind of sort of has a theme, if you would. Um, the <laughs> we're it seems to me we're going to be dealing with a lot of stuff that's progressive in the first hour today. And uh, and so let, I mean, let's take a look at this. Uh, number one, uh, I, I uh, want to announce that I'm going to uh, an upcoming speaking engagement on August fourth uh, at seven p.m. here in uh, in Indiana. I'm going to be uh, speaking at what's called the Worldview Boot Camp, and uh, and uh, I'll put up a link over at uh, FightingForTheFaith.com. Uh, and uh, send out send it out on Twitter and Facebook. So if you're in Central Indiana, 
And uh, I, I'm going to be speaking with uh, Gary Ka, Michael, Micah Clark, and uh, Carl Teakrib, um, basically at a, at a Worldview Boot Camp event. And uh, the, the, the name of it is Reclaiming Biblical Doctrine and uh, Reading, Studying, and Proclaiming the Word of God. And so I'm going to be speaking on uh, defending the authority of uh, God's Word in light of what we hear from emergence and new progressives. And uh, and so that's here in uh, central Indiana. And in fact, um, yeah, let's see here if I have the address. Um, you know what? I'll send I'll send out some stuff uh, regarding this. Stay tuned. That's kind of the you know my first announcement uh, regarding it. It's at Harbor Shores Church, by the way, in uh, Noblesville, Indiana. Harbor Shores Church in Noblesville, Indiana. If you want directions. You can go to uh, harborshores.org, and that's H-A-R-B-O-U-R-S-H-O-R-E-S.org, Harbor Shores Church in Noblesville, Indiana. The event starts at 7 o'clock, and uh, if you uh, are anywhere in Indiana and capable of making it out to this event, uh, would love to see you there and uh, get a chance and opportunity to meet you personally. So I uh, wanna, wanted to announce that. That's coming up. Um, let's see here, uh, kind of an update on Rick Warren. We'll talk about that in a second here. If you've been following me on Twitter, or if you've been on Twitter at all today, then you probably have heard that Rick Warren, um, got some poison in his eyes. We got an update on that. We'll talk about that. And, uh, and then, uh, um, the, uh, Lutheran World Federation has uh, kicked off and, uh, Bishop Mark Hansen of the ELCA uh, it was there and uh, and speaking, and so uh, I got a headline from a an article in the Christian Post talking about how the Lutheran World Federation is pushing for one church efforts, and uh, we're going to answer uh, Bishop Hansen and these other Lutherans uh, from the Word of God um, because these guys are apostate. That's the only way to uh, look at it. And then um, we're, I'm going to finish the article that I began yesterday. Uh, entitled Getting in Front of Jesus, the Politics of Progressive Christianity. So this is part 1.2. And uh, so we'll be uh, taking a look at, at that. And then we're going to be listening to audio from a vid- video that recently went up on, at uh, YouTube. And I actually have turned this into an exhibit at the Museum of Idolatry. Uh, yes, I am the curator of the Museum of Idolatry. I have the world's largest cur- uh, collection of artifacts of apostasy. And if you would like to see the, my collection, you can uh, visit my museum at uh, alittleleven.com, alittleleven.com. And um, this, uh, the, uh, the exhibit that I put up is basically, is, uh, is Jesus relevant to uh, LGBT people? But uh, the, the question that we're going to look at today is, uh, uh, do progressive Christians believe in Jesus? And... I play this so that you can hear what they're saying, and we're going to have to spend some time today answering them biblically and just thinking through some passages. I mean, this is um, some crazy stuff that we're hearing here. And, you know, what I've noticed is is that we're hearing less and less and less about the emergent church movement and more and more and more about progressive Christian thought and theology. And I think one could make the case that uh, the, the emergent church movement has emerged, and it emerged as progressive uh, theology, and uh, which is, is different different than modernist liberalism. 
And boy, is this stuff, uh, it, it's just completely irrational and crazy in so many ways. So uh, we'll be listening to that today. And then our sermon review today comes to us via Elevate Life Church. Elevate Life Church, It's um, the sermon is entitled Unstoppable Church, and the pastor's name is Keith Kraft, and Elevate Life Church is in Frisco, Texas. And they're in the middle of this ginormous building campaign. And, you know, this guy, he's another one that reminds me of um, kind of a con artist who's somehow in the pulpit because... He and his wife are co-pastors there at uh, Elevate Life Church, and he's kind of a Joel Osteen wannabe in in many ways. But we're going to be listening to his sermon today and the train wreck theologically that thing is. So lots to do today. Hang on to your hats. Sit down. Enjoy yourself. Make yourself comfortable. Fuzzy bunny slippers, weather permitting. Uh, Adult beverages, we don't have a problem with that. And uh, with that, we're going to uh, dive into the program proper. Um, our first item uh, actually is kind of an update. Uh, Rick, I sent out a tweet today basically asking people to stop what they were doing and to pray for uh, Rick Warren. I had, as I was uh, doing my thing today in, progr- in preparation for the program and in promoting the program and uh, doing my production work, saw something come across uh, my Twitter stream that uh, somebody had retweeted a uh, a Rick Warren uh update that on Monday he he had severely hurt his eyes or you know he had gotten some kind of a toxic poison in his eyes and when he sent out the original tweet um, there was a question as to whether or not uh, there would be a full recovery of his eyesight and of course uh, my my response is is that when those ty- when that kind of news comes across I don't care if the person is a confessional uh, Christian uh uh, a star in Reformation theology, a heretic or an atheist. We stop and we pray. And the reason why we do that is because all of us are sinners. All of us suffer the wages of our sin, which is death, and that death creeps upon us uh, in many ways kind of slowly. And so all of these types of accidents and maladies and terrible things that happen to people um, we don't wish that on anybody, and knowing that we deserve that even ourselves, and they're all little mini deaths on the way to, on the way to our physical death, and uh, and so uh, you know, having met Rick Warren again, I think he's the nicest guy you'll ever meet. I mean, just absolutely wonderfully likable, and as heretical as they get. <laughs> well, actually, no, he's not as heretical as they get, but he's he's dead wrong on many things, and he is heretical. And he has a habit of twisting God's word, and uh, he's almost single-handedly responsible for much of the mischief that has been unleashed on the church today. That being said, I don't wish him ill. I I I, I wish him repentance and forgiveness of his sins, and I I wish him, uh, well, to kind of put a double spin on it. I I pray that his eyes would be opened and that his sight would be restored. I mean that physically as well as spiritually. Spiritually in the sense that um, he thinks that he can grow the kingdom of God or the church by twisting God's word, scratching itching ears, watering down the message, and in many ways twisting it and changing it. Even though he insists that he isn't changing the message. And so um, take the time today, if you haven't already, 
to lift Rick Warren up to the our King of Kings and Lord of Lords, Jesus Christ, and ask that God would heal him and restore his sight. I think that's a worthy prayer. All right, moving along here. I, in fact, I, before I'm able to move along, I have to make sure that I can find my vintage update uh, music. Hang on a second here. I didn't have my soundboard queued up. Here it is. From the uh, Christian Post, the headline reads, Lutheran World Federation pushes one church effort. Those of you who are not Lutherans, um, hang in there with me. The reason why I would like you to hang in there with me is because um, there's there's much that can be learned from this particular news story and the um, the greater issues that are at stake that really come to the forefront as I read it. Um, this let's see. This was written by. Uh, Audrey, hang on a second here, Audrey Barrick of the uh, Christian Post. Here's what it says. Talks of a continued commitment toward ecumenicism or church unity dominated the stage on Wednesday at the Lutheran World Federation's assembly. Uh, By the way, they're meeting in Stuttgart, Germany. Um, The Lutheran commitment to ecumenicism will not end we can uh, until we can share the eucharist with each with each other's churches lutheran world federation president bishop mark s hansen who's also the pre- uh, presiding bishop of the uh, elca said wednesday at the assembly which is being held in stuttgart germany if roman catholics and lutherans for example can feed the hungry together wouldn't it be good if they could be fed the lord's table together he posed uh, the Lutheran World Federation is the world's largest communion of uh, Lutheran churches, representing over 70 million Christians in 79 cr- countries. It holds an assembly every six years. This year's meeting drew leaders and representatives from the Roman Catholic Church, the Eastern Orthodox Church, and the Anglican Communion, the United Methodist Church, and the World Communion of Reformed Churches. The Lutheran World Federation has pursued deeper relations with each uh, each of the global church bodies, one of the landmark ecumenical events was the 1999 signing of the Joint Declaration on the Doctrine of Justification. To be the Lutheran, uh, to be the Lutheran World Federation, a communion of churches is to be ecumenical, said Hansen in his report. When a radically inclusive communion is God's gift to us in Christ at the center of our self-understanding, we will always define ourselves first in terms of our relatedness to others in the body of Christ. Quote, we gather in Stuttgart as more than fragments who momentarily put together the semblance of a whole. We gather because we are one by God's grace through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. God's gift of unity will be experienced and expressed again and again in the midst of our very diversity and even our differences. Regarding differences on human sexuality, Hansen encouraged Christians to begin the conversation by identifying what they have in common, such as uh, we are all sexual beings, duh, uh, rather than from a position of judgment. His comments uh, come, what a completely subversive thing to say. We'll talk about this in a second. His comments come nearly a year after the Evangelical Lutheran Church in America, of which he is the presiding bishop, opened the door to allow partnered, that means <clears throat> unrepentant, 
uh, gay and lesbians to serve as clergy. <clears throat> he expressly concerned he expressed concerns over emerging conversations in some Lutheran churches about what it means to be truly Lutheran. Quote, I, I sense that there is a growing desire on the part of some to look at our rich shared confessions not as a reason for conversation about how we can live in that confessional tradition, but rather as a way of determining who is truly Lutheran and who is not. Hmm. He said, noting that he desires to see full unity among Lutherans themselves, quote, that, uh, that, would, be an, uh, that would be an unfortunate breakdown. I, he, doesn't, he desires to see full unity. That would be an unfortunate breakdown. I don't know what that means. Hansen called, uh, called for not only affirming the theological and confessional foundations uh, they share as Lutherans, but also for, the renewing, uh, for renewing a commitment that, quote, to be Lutheran is to be both evangelical and ecumenical. Lutheran World Federation General Secretary Reverend Dr. Ishmael Noko recalled in his address the statement they adopted in 2007. Rather than see themselves as the church, Lutheran World Federation views itself as a movement within one church. We are aware that we need other Christians, Noko said. Okay, got to pause here for a second. In fact, I, I don't even know if I'm going to get back to the rest of the story. I think you get what's going on here. Okay, the, basically in Stuttgart, Germany, we've got the um, a whole bunch of, from what it looks like and sounds like, a bunch of liberal Lutherans. And uh, it, they, they don't want to, uh, you know look at our confessions and say who's in and who's out. Despite the fact if you would read the Book of Concord, um, the Confessions of the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod, uh, not Missouri Synod, but the Lutheran Church, I mean, as a whole. I mean, uh, you know, the conf this is confessional Lutherans subscribe to these things. And uh, when you read them, not only are affirmative statements made in the Confessions of the Lutheran Church, but also negative statements. So you have uh, affirmative and, uh, and negative. You have positive and negative. And, uh, and we affirm this and we deny that. And so, the, I mean, at the very heart, of, I mean, what's the point of having a confession and saying this is what the church believes, teaches, and confesses when those who don't believe, teach, and confess those confessions, um, you know, and th those doctrines that are derived directly from the scriptures, if no one wants, if, if someone's going to disagree with them, how can you say you have unity with them? So this kind of brings up a point and something that I think is very interesting is that uh, heretics always seem to push for a contrived unity in the body of Christ, a unity, a unity that states that doctrinal differences and the truth don't matter. Doctrinal differences and the truth don't matter. Uh, it, it's a unity that says that we need to show the world that we're united despite the fact that we can't agree on fundamental and primary doctrines such as the inerrancy of Scripture, sin, repentance and the forgiveness of sins christology soteriology and in fact the even even the gospel message itself you know and so for you got to understand for heretics it's it, unity at all costs is is a primary objective the reason why is because unquestioning unity or basically embracing quote unity and diversity which is ridiculous um, is a way of lending credibility to their false doctrine. And so unity heretics are always very concerned about contrived unity, a unity that says you need to embrace me as, uh, as a, your Christian brother despite the fact I hate and disagree with every single doctrine that you guys hold 
dear and true. You you need to and so they they talk in these magnanimous terms. Oh, we, you know, we we need to not judge people. We we don't want to approach our confessions by way of saying who's Lutheran and who's Christian and who's not and oh no 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 we we need to use our confessions as a means of having a conversation and and finding common ground. It, that doesn't mean anything. It doesn't mean anything. Uh, whereas true biblical Christianity understands and teaches that if there's going to be unity, then that unity must be based upon mutual a mutual and shared subscription to sound Christian doctrine. And the Catholic faith, the small c Catholic faith that has been taught that was taught in the scriptures and has been confessed by Christ's church from the beginning until now. You see, when we go back to the theology of the Reformation, okay, the Reformation wasn't about a sharp break with what the church has taught. Unlike today's, you know, emergent movements and progressive movements, which really do strive to rethink, reimagine, construct a brand new Christianity, the Reformation, if you read the documents of the Reformation, was all about, wait a second, the Bible says this, and Rome now says this. These doctrines that Rome is teaching are contrary to Scripture, and subsequently, they're also contrary to what the church has taught from the beginning. And so, um, you know, the, the, the Reformation is highly indebted to the concept of getting back to Scriptures, getting back to what the church has taught and confessed from its inception, and when you look at the scholarship that comes out of the 16th century, great effort was took, uh, took, great effort was taken in order to demonstrate that what the Lutherans were teaching was the same as what was taught in the scriptures and the same as what the early church was teaching. Great effort was shown that was taken to show that there wasn't a break with what uh, the historic Christian faith has taught, but rather that these doctrines that the Lutheran Church confesses are actually the same as what the church has been teaching all along and has been has been teaching since the beginning, beginning in God's word and then looking into the uh, the writings of the church fathers and uh, and even some of the church councils. And so Lutheranism wasn't some new exotic plant that, you know, as if Lutheran doctrine were some kind of new thing that had never been seen before. If you truly understand the confessions of the Lutheran faith, every single one of the doctrines that we have, we proclaim, teach, and confess in our confessional statements, great pain was taken to show that that has been the church's historic teaching, not something new. Okay, so Mark Hansen and these progressive emergent Newton liberals come along and they are teaching something completely new doctrines that have never been taught in the Christian faith. And they insist on unity. And Mark Hansen imagines the day when all all Lutherans can come together in big tent fashion and share communion together. Yeah, well, I won't be joining you, Mark. Because uh, I, I don't see that as um, biblical. Let me let me give you an example. If you have your Bibles, you can open up to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. 
I'm going to re- be reading verses 14 through 22, and I want you to listen to this in regard to communion. Okay, This is what was written under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit by the Apostle Paul. Paul writes, he says, Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. Flee from it. Okay, I speak as to sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body. For we all partake of the one bread. Consider the people of Israel. Are are not those who eat the sacrifices participants in the altar? What do I imply then? That food that has been offered to idols is anything or that an idol is anything? Well, no. I imply that what pagan sacrifice they offer to demons and not to God. I do not want you to be participants with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? You see, here's the deal. Is Mark Hansen and other liberal progressive Lutherans, in quotation marks, are guilty of idolatry. They have rejected the scriptures. They have rejected the clear teachings of God's word. And subsequently, they reject what the confessions of the Lutheran church teach. And the whole point of having those confessions was to have a standard and a rule by which we judge who's in and who's out, who's soundly teaching God's word and who's a heretic. That was the whole point of those confessional documents. Okay, And on top of it, they give us the framework for understanding what true Christian unity is. So I can't have communion with Mark Hansen. I cannot take the Lord's Supper with Mark Hansen because he is an idolater. He doesn't worship the same God that I do. He's He worships a God of his own making that looks and thinks like he does, that that from time to time where it's convenient, he borrows ideas from the one true God, but rejects other stuff that, uh, well, doesn't fit his progressive and liberal ideas. And he takes tries to take the spiritual and loving high ground by basically saying, see, I'm not judgmental. I'm open to all kinds of diversity. It sounds so pious. It's blasphemy. It, that's the That's the only word for it. Let me read another passage to you. Philippians chapter 1, starting at verse 27, I read, Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I am, I've am i come to you and see you or I'm absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. For this is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation, and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. Important passage here, because what he's saying is, he says, um, 
that when it comes to Christian unity, that we stand firm together in one spirit and one mind, striving side by side for the faith. That's and that's in the in the Greek. It's the faith. We we strive side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened by our opponents. If we're to have true Christian unity, it has to be. It has to be unity based on having one mind, striving side by side together for the faith, once for all delivered to the saints, for the faith of the gospel. Not these other foreign, new, progressive, emergent, liberal ideas. That's not the gospel. Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, said... If anyone comes to you preaching a gospel other than the one already preached, let him be eternally damned. Christian unity has to be based upon one mind of Scripture, period. And you say, oh, that just sounds terrible. What, no flexibility? No diversity? No, we're talking about the faith once for all delivered to the saints. We don't do this with math. I mean... Folks, the last time I checked, okay, my 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 kids, two of them are completely grown now. Man, am I getting old. Anyway, uh two of my adult children, I you know, we actually homeschooled those uh my older two for a little bit of time. And here's the irony here. Are you ready for this? The same math that I learned when I was in grade school is exactly the same math that my children learned when they were in grade school. And and they learned it in the same grades. They learned 2 plus 2 equals 4. Then they learned how to subtract. And then they learned their multiplication tables. And then they learned how to divide. And then they learned fractions. And then they you know went on from there. And you know what? The same answers to the same problems that I had to solve were the same answers to the same problems they had to solve. Truth doesn't change. I don't see people just sitting there going, oh, you know what we really need? We need some mathematical diversity here. I'm sick and tired of us always, always doing a math problem and it coming up with the same answer. When is 3 plus 3 going to equal 52? I mean, that's what we need. We need more diversity in the answers to uh, mathematical things. When it comes to the things of God, it's the same thing, folks. God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Plain and simple. We believe, teach, and confess the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. And if we are to have any unity in the body of Christ, it cannot be a unity based upon diversity. It has to be a unity a unity based upon the singular mind of God revealed for us in his word. Now, there's divisions in Christianity, but I don't think those divisions are caused by God's word. I think ultimately those divisions are caused by people who refuse to bend the knee to what God's word clearly teaches. If we're to strive for true Christian unity, it has to be a coming together with the book opened and us saying, This word speaks, and it decides. And if I have a doctrine that contradicts God's word, then that doctrine has to bend the knee and go, and it has to give way to the clear teaching of the word of God. I will not take communion with heretics under any circumstances. 
that's contrary to God, to what God's word says. And it's contrary to the unity that is taught in God's word. We're up on our first break. If you would like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com. Or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. Or you can follow me on Twitter. My name there, Pirate Christian. We'll be right back. If you want advice on how to have your best life now, you're in the wrong place. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. You're listening to Pirate Christian Radio. We'll be taking your false doctrine now. <laughs> made available by Mars Hill Bible Church in Grand Rapids, Michigan. Lectio Divina is an ancient spiritual practice from the Christian monastic tradition, and in Lectio Divina we seek to experience the presence of God through reading and listening, prayer, meditation, and contemplation. Lectio Divina can be done as an individual or a group. Are you ready to begin? Yes, I guess I am. All right. Begin by choosing a section of scripture that you would like to read and pray. You can choose the text randomly, or use a liturgical book like the Book of Common Prayer. Try not to set a goal for how much content you will cover. The goal is to listen for and experience God and His presence. Um, I guess I'll go randomly then. Eeny, meeny, miny, moe, catch a scripture by its toe. If it's gospel, let it go. Eeny, meeny, miny, moe. Preparation for Lectio Divina. Next, do what you must to quiet and prepare yourself to hear from God. If you need to find a quiet room or sit in silence for several minutes or sit in a comfy chair, take whatever posture will help you prepare to receive and experience God's presence. Okay, let's see. I've got my comfy chair and... Oh, no. You out there! How am I supposed to experience the presence of God if you are using a jackhammer? Shut up! Don't feel sorry about that, ma'am. Yeah, you better be sorry! Next, when you sense that your heart is prepared, begin by slowly reading the passage of Scripture that you have selected. Don't move too quickly through any sentence or phrase, and as you read, pay attention to what word or phrase or idea catches your attention. Okay, I don't know when I'm supposed to be ready. There's no, no, no kind of timer on me. Anyway, um, the passage of scripture. Judas hung him, himself. Judas hung himself. Judas hung himself. 
Next, begin to meditate on the word, phrase, or idea that captured your attention. Repeat it again and again. Hang himself. Hang himself. Hang himself. What thoughts come to mind as you meditate on this word, phrase, or idea? Suicide. What are you reminded of in your life? Um, an early death. What does it make you hope for? A different passage of scripture. Next, begin to speak to God. Tell God what word, phrase, or idea captured your attention, and what came to mind as you meditated upon it. Lord, the phrase was, Judas hung himself. It's not a good feeling. How is God using this word, phrase, or idea to bless and transform you? How should I know that? Tell God what you have been thinking and feeling as you've listened and meditated. I'm feeling depressed. Tell God how you hope this word, phrase, or idea will change your heart to be more like His. This is rubbish. A complete waste of my time. I could be out trimming the petunias or burying the cat or something. If I'm going to experience God, I'm going to do it the old-fashioned way. Just open the Bible and read it. Don't be so silly and modern. Everybody knows that you can't experience God that way. Dr. Rod Rosenblatt discussing the church's need for world-class scholarship and the unique way in which the British academic model offered at the Wittenberg Institute can help provide you with a top-level postgraduate theological degree. Christians are dependent on good scholarship in a way that sometimes we forget. Think of Tyndall House in England. Some of those evangelicals were so ruled away from the big table conversation in the Church of England that they had to develop graduate training under particular guys who had a high view of Christ and a high view of Scripture. Over the years, they did marvelous stuff with individual young scholars who came there to be trained. So what's the difference between the European model and the American model? The European is used to saying things like, I studied under so-and-so, and the American, uh, that's pretty foreign. And I'm not here talking about the diploma mills. I'm talking about somebody who is tutored, something like Oxford or at Cambridge, and uh, walked through graduate work. If you would like more information about the Wittenberg Institute's British-styled research master's degree, then visit them on the web at wittenberginstitute.org forward slash PCR or call them at area code 425-533-8659. Keep more of your money in your pocket. Hi, Chris Roseborough here. If you're planning to travel anytime in the near future, then don't pay more for airfare, hotel rooms, or rental cars than you need to. Longtime Pirate Christian Radio featured advertiser Cheap O Air can save you a Tijuana taxi load of money on all of your travel needs. Plus, Cheap O Air has a seasonal promotional code for all of our listeners that will save you an additional $10 off of Cheapo Air's already low prices. Visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap, write down the promo code, and then click on the banner, and then book your travel today. 
Again, that's piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap. Warning, there is no unity that Christians share with heretics. Unity on what? Need to remind you all, Fighting for the Faith is a listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon your generous gifts and financial contributions in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you as well as to the world. You can partner with us financially, and what you're, when you partner with us financially is is that you're in one way you're recognizing the unity of the message that we all hold in common that Christ was crucified for our sins. We believe in the inerrancy of Scripture. We believe in Christ's penal substitutionary death, His vicarious death on the cross for the sins of the world. That we that we confess together that that men are called to repentance and the forgiveness of sins in Jesus' name. That Jesus Christ is God in human flesh. We affirm the Trinity together. That man is born dead in trespasses and sins and regenerated through the powerful working of God's spirit through the preaching of his word. These are the things that you're proclaiming with us, that truth matters and that these errors that have infested the church do not make the church better, but are in fact killing the church. You can partner with us financially. Visit our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you'll see two friendly yellow buttons. One says donate. The other says join our crew. When you join our crew, you're signing up to automatically contribute $6.95 every month to the ongoing mission of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. Of course, if you would like to specify the amount that you would like to contribute, you can do so by clicking on the Donate button, or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and send it to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. Okay, I'm going to have to put off uh, part uh, 1.2 of our Brad Braxton uh, getting in front of Jesus uh, article. I'll save, excuse me, I'll save that for uh, sometime next week. Um, in the meantime, this is audio from a video uh, put together by Sunshine, Sunshine Cathedral. The name of the series is called Sharing the Light. In in reality, this is called Sharing the Darkness. And uh, the name of the this video is called, Do Progressive Christians Believe in Jesus? You need to hear this, and we will comment, obviously I will comment along the way. Uh, so here is uh, uh, Pastor or the Reverend Robert Griffin of the Suns- Sunshine Cathedral. They're down in, I think, Fort, uh, Fort Lauderdale, Florida, um, talking about progressive Christian progressive Christians. Do they believe in Jesus? Here we go. Hello and welcome to Sharing the Light. I want to thank you for joining us here today where we are going to be discussing the topic, Do Progressive Christians Believe in Jesus? Do Progressive Christians Believe in Jesus? And today we're joined by Reverend Michael Diaz here at the Sunshine Cathedral, uh, Reverend Dr. Darrell Watkins, who's the senior pastor of the Sunshine Cathedral, and he's going to introduce our guest who's with us today also. We have a guest, uh, Ms. Nikki Bailey. She is a graduate of uh, Union Theological Seminary, and she's our guest uh, theologian for today's panel. Wonderful. I want to welcome you each uh, here today, and thank you for being with us. So how do we engage this topic of do progressive Christians believe in Jesus? Is there a need to define progressive first, <laughs> and is there a need to define what we mean about Jesus? Well, okay. Um, okay, now before we go anywhere, 
One of the things I've talked about is the danger that evolutionary theory, uh, Darwinism, poses to Christianity. This is something I've talked about somewhat regularly here at Fighting for the Faith. I do not see Darwinism as compatible with biblical Christianity at all. I trust Jesus. Now, one of the things is, in talking about progressives, this, I think, is the thing that's really emerging uh, from the emergent conversation is kind of a neo-progressive uh, idea. And that's the idea is there's progress. This is a theology that is highly uh, indebted to evolution. And listen carefully to how it weds itself to some evolutionary concepts. Because we at the Sunshine Cathedral do uh, identify ourselves as progressive Christians. Uh, Sunshine Cathedral is affiliated with the Center for Progressive Christianity. And uh, so, we, so we should define uh, progressive, I guess, uh, because uh, things to be living, to be dynamic, uh, are progressive. Uh, because they are subject to change. They are subject to evolution. They're subject to uh, new perspectives and new understandings and always reinterpreting, basically doing what Jesus did. Uh, he was always uh, reexamining traditions, reexamining stories, uh, reapplying them in new ways, making them relevant for his time. And the people, the early church did that with Jesus, uh, reinterpreting and reunderstanding and reapplying for their various communities. And so. Now, this is, by the way, is a progressive fairy tale. Okay. Jesus made it clear that heaven and earth will pass away, but his word will never pass away. This is a progressive lie, and, you, and it needs to be challenged. Jesus didn't come and, you know, kind of reinterpret everything in such a way that he was being progressive and, you know, taking us to the next level. And uh, no, 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 not at all. Jesus, in fact, has the highest view of God's word and basically talks about the fact that the Christians are to abide in his word, not deviate from it, hold it, guard it. Those were the, these, that's the way Jesus spoke about God's word. Okay. And Jesus didn't come to reimagine and reinterpret things. He did confront self-righteous people, people who thought they were earning salvation through their keeping of the law. These are people who completely didn't understand what the purpose of the law was and they were self-righteous. He did confront those self-righteous Pharisees and others who thought that they were worthy in and of themselves by their keeping of the law and didn't see their need for a savior. And Jesus himself, when he goes into the scriptures, like in you know the Road to Emmaus account in Luke 24, points out that the scriptures are about him. And he po in John, the uh, Jesus says to the uh, Pharisees, "You diligently search the scriptures, for you think that in them you have life. Yet you refuse to come to me that you might have life." Jesus points out the fact that those scriptures, the Old Testament, are the very scriptures that testify about him. Jesus reveals that the scriptures are all really about him. He doesn't reinterpret them. He shows us the true nature and the true meaning and what the scriptures really are about. 
So that is that is progressive. Is that it's it's open to change and evolution, and always uh, new perspectives and wider and broader perspectives. Once we start trying to lock something in to a creed, or a, a statement of faith, or a statement of belief, and saying this is what it has to be for all times, and this is no one can understand it any differently, that is of course not progressive. That's trying to make things static. But uh, we think that religion should be living, and living things evolve and change and grow. And- Okay, now, if you were to take this guy seriously, then then whole sections of Scripture just don't make any sense, okay? Let me give you an example, okay? Let, 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 if you have your Bible, we're going to do a little bit of flipping around, but that's okay. I, I just, it, 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 religions live and grow and evolve and change. That's progressive Christianity. It's a living, growing, evolving, changing, religion, newer ideas that come, to new perspective, reimaginings. And, eh, we don't want to be static. We grow. We don't want to be straight-jacketed. We want to grow. We want to wander. We uh-huh. All right. Jude. The Epistle of Jude. Verse 3, Beloved, I I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation. I I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once delivered for the saints, or to the saints. For certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord Jesus Christ. Jude, by the way, is is the brother of Jesus. He's the half brother of Jesus. Um, um, if Christianity is supposed to be a living, growing, evolving, changing religion, you know, progressing, um, then Jude really didn't get with the program, did he? I mean, he's telling us to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. Uh, Jude doesn't seem to be a progressive at all. And if he wants us to contend for the faith, then that means we're to contend against the enemies of the faith. And who are the enemies of the faith? People who pervert the gospel. People who change it. People who twist it and make it into something that it's not. And if you read the epistle uh, all the way through, Jude gives three primary uh, descriptions as it pertains to these false teachers who've crept in. Now, let me give you another passage to consider. Um, I mean, if Christianity is a, a religion that progresses, then why would the Apostle Peter, okay, um, why would the Apostle Peter in his uh, second epistle, this would be Second uh, Peter chapter 2, say this, but false prophets also arose among the people just as there will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction. And many will follow their sensuality because of them. The way of truth will be blasphemed. They will exploit you with false words. Their condemnation from long ago is not idle and their destruction is not asleep. It doesn't seem to me that the Apostle Peter was much of a progressive thinker. Because, I mean, if if Christianity is supposed to progress and whatever, how can we... I mean, the, the category of false prophet, the category of false teacher, the category of heretic and heresy doesn't even exist anymore if you believe in a, quote, progressive Christianity. You've got to basically be open to everything and anything. Because, I mean... 
You've got, I mean, we got to be open to new ideas, to fresh perspectives, new interpretations, new twists off of old themes and all things like that. Yet the Apostle Peter, who, by the way, spent three years being taught and instructed directly by Jesus himself, seems to to really put the kibosh on uh, this idea of false, you know, of, of progressivism. He's not much of a progressive. Let me read ch- chapter 3, uh, um, chapter 3, verse 1. Now, this is the second letter that I'm writing to you, beloved. In both of them, I'm stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord of the Lord and Savior through your apostles, knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days, scoffing and following their own sinful desires. Huh. So, um, hmm. Peter is warning us against scoffers. And what are these progressives? People who scoff at biblical truth within the visible church, of course. Now, what about Jesus? Was Jesus a progressive? I mean, was he open to this idea of we've got to be, you know, looking how the faith is going to grow and progress and evolve and change and and all of that? Well, it doesn't look like it if you understand Jesus' teaching. If you have your Bible, flip on over to the Gospel of Matthew, um, verse uh, chapter 24, okay? Uh, chapter 24, um it will start at verse one. Jesus left the temple and was going away when his disciples came to the po- uh, point out to him the buildings of the temple. And he answered them, "You see all these, all of these. You you do not truly. I say to you, there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down." Now, as he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately, saying, "Well, tell us when will these things be? What will be the sign of your coming and the close of the end of the age?" Jesus answered them, "See to it that no one." leads you astray for many will come in my name saying i am the christ and they will lead many astray and you'll hear of war wars and rumors of wars and don't be alarmed these things must take place but the end has not yet come okay uh, verse 11 and many false prophets will arise and lead many astray and because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. Well, if Christianity is supposed to be an ever-growing, expanding, evolving, changing new ideas kind of religion where we've got new truth coming in on a on a almost daily basis then this idea of Jesus warning us against false prophets and false teachers and not being led astray doesn't make any sense because in the progressive way of thinking pretty much anything goes i mean it's you got to kind of embrace all the diversity of different ideas and truths and whatever because, I mean, we can't say no to anything because if we say no to anything, we might be saying no to what the, the new thing is that God is saying. There's no category for false teacher, false prophet, or heretic in progressive Christianity. Therefore, it can't possibly be biblical Christianity. 
And so by progressive, we mean that we're always open to new understandings. Ernest Holmes would call that uh, open at the top, okay. that we're open to the revelations and discoveries of science and psychology and philosophy and other religious traditions and our own experience. Uh, other religious experience, other religious traditions like, you know, Islam, Buddhism. And our own experiences, but we're just we're not going to limit ourselves to you know what the Bible says, as well as uh, what uh, our ancestors have said before us about our own tradition. So we're open to all of it. We wrestle with it. We struggle with it, and we're not locked in to any one particular understanding for all time. And so that's what we mean by progressive uh, th that we are progressive Christians. Okay. Uh, we can we can get to the belief part, but let's see if anyone has anything else to say about progressive. Nikki. Anything on what your take about what it means to be a progressive or? Uh, I, I guess it was last year or the year before the United Church of Christ had as their, their slogan, um, God is still speaking. Hmm. And, uh, and I would say as. Uh, what about God has spoken? Progressive Christians, we, we would embrace that, that idea that, that God is not finished with us yet, hmm. that God is not finished with the universe. And so we, we embrace the idea that, that. The universe is a living, breathing thing, and that, um, and that our belief is always changing and always um, engaged in the pursuit of more and the pursuit of understanding, and and that that's a prog progressive Christian idea. Michael, I don't think anything to be say more on on progressive, but uh, following the example of Jesus, I think if anything, in Jesus' day, one of the biggest things that he did was sort of close the gap that the, the perceived gap that people had between them and God you know people are always told that if you're going to be right with God you know there are certain rituals you have to partake in if you're going to be right with yourself there are certain rituals you had to partake in and if anything Jesus as a progressive individual you know really tried to get rid of yeah so this is the Jesus being reshaped into progressive thought this is not the biblical Jesus this is the um uh the liberalized progressive social justice Jesus that gap and say if anything the kingdom of God is within you hmm. and I think that is something that we are uh, by the way no Jesus actually didn't say that now if you follow the, if you read the King James version you're thinking like Luke chapter 17 verses 20 22 tw somewhere in there um, actually the better way of translating that and I think the mo modern translations get it correctly it's not that Jesus, uh, the kingdom of God is within you, but Jesus was declaring the kingdom of God is in your midst. It's among you. Why? Because Jesus was there. He's the king. The, Jesus did not teach the kingdom of God is within you. Okay? Not the way this guy is saying. Listen again. The kingdom of God is within you. And I think that is something that we are trying to follow in an example as progressive Christians to really close those gaps and let people know that there is no gap anymore. That wherever you are, there is God. Wherever you are, there is God. Wow, the Bible says nothing even remotely close to this. But let's get back to the question, the original question now. Right. Do progressive Christians believe in Jesus? Well, because we are progressive. Now, listen, we've got to, uh, well, we believe in him, but let's put all the different caveats in front of it so that we can somehow say we believe in Jesus without actually, well, believing what the scriptures say about jesus we understand believe uh to maybe differently uh, even from from one another i mean what, what do you mean do, do we believe in jesus um my understanding of believe is that 
uh, to believe in something is, isn't to accept something uncritically. That's, that's not necessarily belief. I guess that's one way to understand belief. But there's another way to understand belief, and that is to set your heart on something. And if you set your heart on something, you want to explore it. You want to know, know more about it. And as you explore it, you're open to new information, to new understandings, to new ways of experiencing it. So I, as a progressive Christian have set my heart on Jesus. And so, yes, I believe in Jesus. That doesn't mean that I believe about Jesus, what someone told me that I should, or what, even what I used to, or what I'll believe tomorrow, that what I believe today, that I've set my heart on Jesus. And that means that Jesus, for me, is, something, is, is, is a symbol and a figure that I am constantly working with, exploring, playing with. And, um, and so how that impacts... So this is the Plato Jesus impacts me, how that uh, uh, influences my life is going to change over time. But because I have set my heart on Jesus, I've made Jesus a primary symbol to work with, I can say, yes, as a progressive Christian, I believe in Jesus. Now, do I believe? Yeah, that, that, I, I, Jesus is a primary symbol that I work and play with. Yeah, no. The Bible says that Jesus is the author and perfecter of our faith not something that we play with. This, that, or the other thing about Jesus, maybe I did, maybe I don't, maybe I will. I mean, that's all in flux. But that's part of what, for me, it means to believe in Jesus. So I would say, yes, I, as a progressive Christian, believe in Jesus. That does not mean that I accept uncritically things that other people have said about Jesus. Okay. Nikki? Uh, I would say that that belief in Jesus would be... Um, belief in, in all of the questions and all of the... So belief in Jesus is belief in all the questions. Ah. All of the seeking and all of the possibility that Jesus represents. Um, yeah, all of the possibility that he represents. These are words that have no meaning. They basically pour into it whatever meaning you want. I mean... Um, so not necessarily... I, I would agree with Darrell, not necessarily believing about Jesus, all of the the things that we were... We were taught in, or I was taught in, the tradition that I was raised in. You know, not necessarily the Jesus died for my sins and. Um, no, uh, no, I don't believe that. Listen to them as they scoff at that idea. Uh, which is, you know, that's fine if that's where you are. But, <laughs> right. <laughs> but um, but yeah, it's a, it's fine if you want to believe that Jesus died for your sins. <laughs> hey, I don't necessarily believe, but that's okay with it's. If you want to, it's okay. <laughs> We've moved way beyond that silly, stupid stuff. The Apostle Paul, Galatians chapter one. Even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel other than one already preached, let him be eternally condemned. What's the gospel that Paul preached? Read 1 Corinthians 15. For I delivered as of first importance that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures and he was raised again on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. You see, the eyewitnesses to the life, death, resurrection of Jesus Christ their message was the same. And they took great pains to knock down aberrant teachings and heresies that had crept in that were contrary to the biblical gospel. The gospel being the good news that Christ died for our sins. Progressive Christians are not Christians. They may be progressive, but they're not Christian.
But for me, it would be believing um, that that um, that all of the things that Jesus represented through um, through his life, and all of the the questions that arise from that, and all of the 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 commitments that I need to make to justice and peace and loving my neighbor um, are a part of what that belief is. Right. Following Jesus is, is, I think, a progressive idea of, of, of believing in Jesus. It's trying to follow his example, mm-hmm. not, not, having, uh, not, not sort of making any one moment, especially maybe that last week or last day of his life, <laughs> be a defining moment. But- yeah, because, you know, that last week of it, that last day of his life, you know, him dying on the cross. We don't want to make that a defining moment for Jesus. That's out of his own mouth. We don't want to make the crucifixion, you know, Jesus' death on the cross. We don't want to make that some kind of a defining moment. Looking at his whole example, his whole ministry, uh, and trying to follow that example, sometimes people say, well, I need a Savior, I need a Savior. Well, that's fine if you have a low anthropology, but what if you have a high anthropology? What if you have a high... Then your high anthropology is absolutely blasphemous and wrong. It's not compatible with biblical Christianity, and God's Word has, well, a high view of anthropology in the sense that we were originally created in the image of God, and that through Adam's sin, we're all now corrupt. Our natures have been corrupted. And we are in need of a savior. So if you have a, quote, high anthropology uh, that contradicts what Scripture teaches about us, that we are dead in trespasses and sins, you're dead wrong. And again, that's all part of evolutionary ideas here. My view of human uh, nature, what if you don't think that we are innately depraved and and broken and, and separated from God? Then you're wrong, sir. You're dead wrong. Well, then we... People who feel better about human nature won't necessarily need someone to come and save them from their own wretchedness. But even if you have a high anthropology, you can still also have a high regard for Jesus. You just are focusing more on his life as a way to empower your own. Right. You have a high view of Jesus. And rather than focusing in on that defining moment like, you know, his death on the cross for our sins. Yeah, we don't don't want to. Instead, we're going to focus in on. Uh, Jesus' life, and let that empower us to be more like him. Wow. A crossless, sinless Christianity is no Christianity at all. Then on focusing on some metaphysical interpretation of, of, of the certain events of his life in order to redeem yourself. I think a lot of traditional Christians think that progressive Christians are afraid of Jesus. No, actually, we don't think you're afraid of Jesus. We think you absolutely hate him, the biblical one, the, the, the one who died on the cross for our sins. I don't think you're afraid of him. I think you hate him. Of Jesus, and I really think it should be the other way around. Progressive Christians, I think, have a great figure to follow in that example. To me, yeah, G- Jesus is just mere example. Yeah, Jesus is probably one of the greatest revolutionaries. Oh, yeah, the revolutionary example, Jesus. Yeah, I mean that's a hallmark of being a progressive. Um, and if anyone should be scared, it should be those traditional modes of theology, that traditional thought, that that baggage that has been carried down for two thousand years that is put. Yeah, because you know what the Christian Church has taught for two thousand years is just baggage. We got to get rid of that. Yeah. Upon Jesus, mm-hmm. what was never there in the first place. Mm-hmm. Wrong. No, all of that baggage, that theological, doctrinal baggage that Christianity has taught for 2,000 years, it, yeah, it was there in the beginning. And so traditional thought, 
traditional ideas about who he is, they should be afraid of, of Jesus because Jesus challenges everything that they stand for, really. Uh, no, he doesn't. If you read the scriptures, everything I believe about Jesus comes from God's word. I, I have nothing to fear from Jesus at all. The, the religious status quo was Jesus's enemy. <laughs> no, it wasn't religious status quo, sir. It was false religion, false self-righteous religion. In fact, very much the same thing that you're promoting in your progressive Christianity. A religion that has a high anthropology, that wants to follow Jesus and follow his example, pull yourself up by your own moral bootstraps and make you feel good about yourself based upon the do-goodism that you do, but doesn't recognize that you are a wretched and depraved sinner in need of a savior. Yeah, you should be afraid because your ideas are not all that different than the Pharisees and the Sadducees when you boil it all down. And uh, and I think uh, it still is in some ways. I mean, we, we don't want to have us against them uh, vocabulary. But, uh, too late. But Jesus never was about supporting the status quo. And I th- Talk about misreading Jesus. I think for progressive Christians, he still isn't. Great. Well, I want to thank you each for joining us here today. On so there you have it. <clears throat> that was enlightening, don't you think? Rather edifying. I need to go take a shower now and... Get this gross, icky feeling off of me. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on today's edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address, talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian, or you can follow me on Twitter. My name there, Pirate Christian. We'll be right back. Sermon review coming up. Sissioprified religiosity won't save you. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. This is the air I breathe. This is the air I breathe. I've had enough. Of the sissy, frenzy, turning for the written music, you have the audacity to call worship. Men, put this entire girly praise band in the boo box. Let's wheel in the organ and get some real worship music underway. Ye be listening to Pirate Christian Radio. Keep more of your money in your pocket. Hi, Chris Roseboro here. If you're planning to travel anytime in the near future, then don't pay more for airfare, hotel rooms, or rental cars than you need to. Longtime Pirate Christian Radio featured advertiser Cheap O Air can save you a Tijuana taxi load of money on all of your travel needs. Plus, Cheap O Air has a seasonal promotional code for all of our listeners that will save you an additional $10 off of Cheap O Air's already low 
prices. Visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap, write down the promo code, and then click on the banner, and then book your travel today. Again, that's piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap. Hour number two of Fighting for the Faith. Sermon review time. Just got a tip on Twitter today about this church. They've already made it into the Museum of Idolatry. Yeah, don't waste any time on those things. second here. All right, let's uh, cue up the sermon review music. Maestro. The good, the bad, the ugly. We review it all here at Fighting for the Faith. We are an equal opportunity sermon reviewing service. Today's sermon, <clears throat> loosely say, saying that word, comes to us from Elevate Life Church, Frisco, Texas, where uh, Pastor Keith and his wife Sheila. That's Keith and Sheila Kraft, our co-pastors. The name of the sermon is entitled Unstoppable Church. By the way, I did mention the fact that they've already made it into the Museum of Idolatry. Earlier today, I posted a uh, video from their church entitled Strut Your Stuff for Jesus. That's right. If you're a woman and you'd like to strut your stuff for Jesus at church, Elevate Life Church in Frisco, Texas, teaches you how to strut your stuff for Jesus. You don't know what I'm talking about? Head on over to the Museum of Idolatry, littleleaven.com. Look for the exhibit entitled, Strut Your Stuff for Jesus. Let's uh, kill the music. Okay. Um, so without any further ado, here is um, Pastor Keith Kraft from Elevate Life Church, Frisco, Texas. Unstoppable Church. Here we go. Okay, say it like you mean it. Here we go. 2010, 
Elevate, multiply, celebrate. Now stop right there. Some of you don't know what in the world we're doing. Here's what we're doing. We're prophesying over our future. God's given us the word Elevate 2009. That wasn't just for 2009. Now it's... What? (sighs) Written, sewn into the tapestry of our life. Multiply is our word for 2010. Come on. Multiply is our word. And then 2011, celebrate. So come on, speak this over your life with me. Here we go. 2010, elevate, multiply, celebrate. Now join the... So today's sermon is brought to you by the words elevate, multiply, and celebrate. Thank you for sharing. And the hundreds that are watching on the World Wide Web, do it one more time like you mean it. 2010, elevate, multiply, celebrate. Come on, put a big hand clap on that. Yeah. Whew, we're off to a <laughs> weird start. So glad you're here. Thank you. Touch somebody's shoulder like this and say, get ready. God's about to interrupt you. You're going to another level. Starting today. Believe it. You're unstoppable. All right, come on. <laughs> oh, man. This is a cheap Joel Osteen knockoff. Okay. All right. Okay, you may be seated. Well, I saw that Pastor Sheila stole my thunder and already welcomed my pastor friend, Jimmy Hester, and his wife. Uh, we call her Squirrel. He calls her Squirrel, so I call her Squirrel because I was called Squirrel by my father, so I like squirrels. But anyway, so glad to, so glad to have you guys. And let me just say this, that Jimmy Hester believed in me when nobody believed in me. And so in 1987, he asked me to be his co-pastor at a great church in Arlington, Texas, Arlington Christian Center. And, uh, and so for about five or six years, I had the privilege of just serving along with him, preaching there once a month. And he just all, he dedicated, uh, Sheila, so he dedicated Josh and dedicated Keela. And, and then Whitney was actually born the Thursday after we finished a strike force crusade in your church. It was like, God let me be home. I was traveling 48 weeks a year. God let me be home the week that Whitney was born. And it was just so awesome. But these are wonderful, precious friends of ours. And again, Sheila's already honored you, but I just honor you again. Thank you for being here. Okay, well, you know what? I want you to turn to Matthew, the 16th chapter. And let me just say this. This is one of my favorite passages of Scripture. We have a, we have a belief around here that if you'll give us a year... We believe that God will change your life in a year for the better, okay? So if you've been around here for a year or more, you've probably heard me talk about this scripture because this is one of those scriptures on which the whole word of God is based. And I want you to look at it. Matthew 16, verse 13. When Jesus came into the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, here's what he said, who do men say that I, the son of man, am? So he was asking really them a question. Hey, who's, what's everybody saying? What's everybody Okay, one of the things I do here when I do my sermon reviews is um, I point out how deception works, okay? This is um, what Pastor Brian Wolfmuller classifies or calls the heresy two-step. What happens is in the heresy two-step is you create the aura that what you're preaching is actually in the Bible. It's a very tricky little uh, dance maneuver, and it begins with you standing on the Word of God. And then after you read the Bible passage, you say something about it that's obvious in the text, and then you 
distract people in such a way they can't see what you're doing, and that is is that you then back up so that you're no longer standing on God's word, and then you shuffle either either to the left or to the right. And the idea is is that by putting out a Bible passage uh, that you that, that that people say, oh yeah, that's that's clearly in the Bible. What happens is you create the impression that everything after that is based upon that text. This is what uh, <clears throat> Pastor Keith is doing here. Uh, he, this is the heresy two-step. We're in Matthew chapter 16. He's at verse 13. Fantastic passage, by the way. He says, uh, let me read it for you. Now, when Jesus came to the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? Well, they said, well, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, others say Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. And he said to them, uh, but who do you say that I am? Well, Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father who is in heaven. For, and I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. I will give you the keys to the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. And then he strictly charged his disciples not to tell uh, not, uh, to tell no one that he was the Christ or the Messiah. So he, the, the fantastic passage where, you know, this question of who do you say that I am? This is a great question for all people to be wrestling with. Who is Jesus? Who does he claim to be? Who is he really? And Peter confesses that he is the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus said that God the Father revealed this to him. And so, I mean, this, this is the proclamation. This, this proclamation that Jesus is the son of God, that he is the Christ, the Messiah. This is the foundational bedrock that the Christian church is built on. Jesus' church is built on. Great passage. And you're going to hear some of the biblical stuff that's going on in this in the very beginning of the sermon but what you're going to be listening to is the heresy two-step this is where he begins and then he distracts you and then he backs away from the text and starts saying stuff that ain't even there i'll point it out to you along the way but here we go saying about who i am and they say well some say that you're jeremiah john the baptist or elijah or jeremiah one of the prophets then he looked him right in the eye and he said okay here's the question of all questions and it's the same question god's asking you if you're in the lobby and you're you're with us and in our overflow area it's the same question god's asking you if you're watching hundreds of you on the internet it's the same question that god is asking you and it's the question of the ages and that is who do you say that i am jesus said who is it that i am and because everybody was saying, well, he's like Jeremiah or Elijah, one of the prophets, you know. Uh, is Jesus Christ just the leader of another religion? Is he co-equal with Muhammad? Is he No, Jesus Christ is the way. He is the truth. He is the life. There is no other way to God but through Jesus Christ. And that's what... Sound true enough. Right on. But watch. Pay close attention. I'll show you when he starts to back away from it. That's what he was trying to say. He was trying to say, who is it that men say that I am? And so Simon Peter, and I love this, you know, he speaks up and he says, you're the Christ. You're the son of the living God. You're the anointed one. You're the one that's sent from God. And I've always sang it like this. You are the Christ, the son of the living God. Stop. Don't do that again. Oh, man. I say you are the Christ, the son of the living God. You are the Christ. Oh, man. Oh. 
This is like a bad American Idol edition. Christ, you are my Lord. I mean, that's how Peter would have said it. Peter, Peter, Peter wouldn't have, Peter wouldn't have gone, well, you're the Christ, you're the Son of the living God. He'd gone, well, I'm glad you asked, Master. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. I say you are the Christ. Enough to sing like that. My girls go, Dad, take the, take the, the verbato off of it. I go, you don't understand. That's Yeah, I, I am with your daughters on that. It's just a natural thing in me. I say you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. You are the Christ. You are- okay, now this is where the distraction begins to take place. And he's, while you're not looking, he's starting to back up. He's, he stood on this text. Now he's shuffling backwards while distracting you. You are my Lord. That's, that's what he was saying. And so look at what Jesus said. The Bible says in verse 17, Jesus answered and said to him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father which is in heaven. And I also say to you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. And what Jesus was saying is not that he was going to build the church on Peter, but he was saying, I'm going to build it on the rock of revelation that you got, that, that I am Lord. And he says, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Somebody say unstoppable. God wants you to know that you are unstoppable. You know, it's, it's one. There it was. Did you catch that? <laughs> it was so fast. You would have missed it. it was, there it was. Okay. Watch what he just did. Does Jesus says the gates of hell will not prevail against the church. No sooner do those words leave his lips than he says, you are unstoppable. Me? You? What? Huh? It's it's a very subtle little trick here. Remember, this is the heresy two-step. He begins on a clear passage, proclaims some stuff about it, starts to shimmy away from it while distracting you, and then moves to the left or to the right. But the whole idea by beginning with a passage and handling it correctly a little bit at the beginning, it lends the idea of biblical, you know, divine credibility to the message that he's going to give, which can't be found in the scripture. Here we go. Listen again. My church. And what Jesus was saying is not that he was going to build the church on Peter, but he was saying, I'm going to build it on the rock of revelation that you got, that, that I am Lord. And he says, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Somebody say unstoppable. God wants you to know that you are unstoppable. You know, it's, it's wonderful. We're, we're building this building and, and God has given us this assignment. But the fact is, it's so much more than just a building. God has given us the privilege to participate on this side of eternity in advancing his cause in the earth. So God has privileged us as his sons and daughters to be a part of building his church. Because at the end of the day, who's building the church? He says, I am building the church. And the gates of hell will not prevail against my church. So the church is not just a building. That's a part of it. But we are the tabernacle of God. And so God says, I am building you. And if you're unstoppable, then my church is unstoppable. So wait, wait, wait a second. Where in there is it? does it say that God is building you? And if you're unstoppable, then my church is unstoppable. Hmm? And by the way, what is it that constitutes a church? If any two of you shall agree as touching anything on earth, 
I will do it. Doesn't matter what the anything is. If just two of you. This is not the biblical definition of the church. If any of you agree about anything, then then it doesn't matter what it is, then that's the church. No, the church is comprised of those whom God has granted repentance and the forgiveness of sins to. They gather in the name of Jesus Christ to hear his word, to proclaim Christ and him crucified for our sins, to receive the sacraments. Um, hmm. Yeah, this guy isn't even very subtle in his heresy two-step. We're already way, way far away from the passage. Matthew 16 doesn't teach the stuff that he's teaching now. He's uh, he's off-roading biblically at this moment. We'll come into agreement and agree on anything. Doesn't matter what the anything is. I will do it. So God wants you. He wants me. He wants us. He wants we to be unstoppable. Unstoppable. So for the next few minutes, that's what I want to talk to you about. What is it that makes the church unstoppable? A couple of things on your notes. Just refer to your notes there. Number one, choose to honor God. That's where it starts. It all starts with honor. If you're going to become unstoppable, you've got to get honor. You've got to, you've got to get what... Uh, where is this taught in the Bible? what God is really saying. And we go all the way back to Genesis, the second chapter. And in Genesis, the second chapter, it picks up the story. You know, God's created the, the heavens and the earth. I mean, the, the earth was void. It was without form. It was full of darkness. The first act... Okay, I want you to listen carefully. I mean, he's again, he's not exegeting the passage at this point. He's mentioning passages, and then he's just wildly inserting in his own ideas into these texts action of God was, the first miraculous action of God, the first powerful, the first mighty act of God is he said, let there be light. And there was light. And that's a prototype for us. In other words, God created us. He goes on to say in his own image, both male and female. Then the Bible says in Genesis 1 27, that he blessed them. So he creates us. And this is our key scripture, core scripture of this entire year for multiply. He blessed them, and then he said, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it, and you will have dominion. You have to unbless yourself. The fact is, because you're God's son and because... I have to what? (laughs) I mean, this is just laughable. I mean, he's just basically making stuff up. I have to unbless myself. Really, you got that out of that passage? Exactly how did you get it out of that passage again? Because you're God's daughter, you're already blessed. So he blessed them, and then he said, now, because you're blessed, be fruitful and multiply. That's our job. Fill the earth, subdue it, and you will have dominion. But then we pick up the story, and in Genesis, the second chapter, verse 17 So then the Lord God took man and he put him in the garden of Eden to tend it and to keep it. That means to cultivate it and to guard it. And the Lord God commanded man saying, of every tree of the garden you may freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you will surely die. Now let me just tell you this. Why is it that God would create this place and then in the midst of it, literally in the middle of it, put this tree of the knowledge of good and evil? Let me tell you why. Well, hold on a second. If you're going to tell me why, you had better have a clear passage of Scripture that explains why. Otherwise, you're not teaching me the truth. 
Because God is not robotic. God doesn't want to make you do what you don't want to do. God's given you a free will. But he set up this system, and it starts in the very beginning of the Bible, and it's a system of honor. In other words, the tree... Which of the apostles taught about this system of honor? The tree of the knowledge of good and evil was about honor. That's what it was about. It wasn't just about obedience, although that's a part of honor, but it was just about, God, you said this is yours, so, so God, you know what, this is yours, and, and, and if we get this right, you'll take care of everything else. It's an honor issue. So it's not about God's a no God. Well, no, now don't do that. Can't do that. Can't do that. No, no. God said, no, just understand. I'm not a, a no God. I'm a yes God. I'm not. A- Where does God say he's not a no God, but a yes God? You're just making stuff up at this point, Keith. I'm not a can't God. I'm a can God. But I put this in the midst of the garden because I want you to know it's right in the middle. It's just like your heart that's in the middle of your body that you can't see. This guy's just completely making stuff up. I mean, this is the most con. I mean, yeah, yeah. Remember, what, what was it? Lovitz was the guy. He said, "Yeah, yeah, that's what it is. It's 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 the tree of the of life. It's like the you know, it's like your heart in the middle of your chest. Yeah, yeah, that's that's what it is. Yeah, yeah. It's all about honor. Yeah, that sounds right. Yeah, he's just making stuff up." But if you eat right and if you exercise, and you know what, I'm going to take care of your heart. And your heart that you can't see will take care of everything else in your body. By the way, the number one killer in the United States is heart disease. The natural supernatural correlation is this. The number one killer of our spirit, what stops us more than anything else, is heart disease. Yeah, yeah, that's what it is, heart disease. Yeah, that's the thing that kills us. Yeah, that sounds right. It's not understanding that it's out of our heart that we honor God. So the tree of the knowledge of good and evil was about honor. That's what, it, that's what it was about. Yeah, yeah, it was about, yeah, that sounds right. But what's pretty amazing is what happens by chapter 3. Now, the serpent was more cunning, the King James says, subtle, than any of the beasts of the field which the Lord God had made. And God said to the woman, now listen, or, or he said, the serpent said to the woman, has God really said that you're not supposed to eat of any of the trees? She said, no, 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 no. That's not what God said. God just said this one. This is the one tree that we're not supposed to eat of, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So here's what the cunning, subtle serpent did. He said, well, you know, don't you think that maybe God said don't eat of that tree because then you'd be like him? And by the way, don't you want to be like him? Let me tell you what the devil's number one goal is, to get you reasoning about whether this book is true or not. It's his number one goal. I don't know if I believe that. I know it. Well, actually, yeah, that's correct. And he has several different ways of doing it. One is lying about what it says or misteaching it, kind of the way you're doing, Keith. It says that, but that was for then, whenever then was. I'm just not sure. So the devil's number one goal is to get you reasoning. The Bible says in... Second Corinthians, the 10th chapter, the, that the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, that you can't, you can't touch them, you can't feel them, but they're mighty through God for the pulling down of strongholds. And then it goes on to say this, casting down imaginations, reasonings, and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God and bringing into captivity every thought to the obedience of Christ. In other words, my biggest deal is the way I think. That's why around here we say when you elevate your thinking, come on, 
You elevate your life. When you elevate your thinking, you elevate your life. Because God said in Isaiah, he said, your thoughts aren't my thoughts and your ways aren't my ways. And as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my thoughts and ways higher than yours. And by the way, the way that my word works and it doesn't return void, I make it prosper wherever it goes, is when you elevate your thinking to think like me. Yeah, yeah, you know. You elevate your thinking to think like me. Yeah, that's what you're supposed to do. Yeah, you're supposed to elevate. Where does it say that again, Keith? Where does it say that any of these ideas that you've come up with, where are any of them taught in the Bible? I don't recall them being anywhere. You've come up with brand new things that I've never heard from nobody know how. Yeah, yeah, you know, it's all. Yeah, that's what it is. It's honor. It's honor. It's all about honor. So the enemy has this goal. And that's to get your reasoning spinning up there going, I don't know if I agree. I don't know if that's that. I don't know if that's. And, and that's what was happening with Eve and ultimately with Adam, who was standing right there next to her. So she saw that it was good for, for food. She desired it to make her wise. She took it. She ate it. She gave it to Adam. And that's a whole nother deal. But the reality is, is that it wasn't the fact that she ate the fruit that was the issue. You see, we focus on the adultery, we focus on the fornication, we focus on the drugs, we focus... Who taught you this again? Which of the apostles said that? Focus on whatever you want to call sin, okay? Which sin simply means to miss the mark. So we can name this sin and the things that we feel bad about. We go, oh God, I feel bad about that. I shouldn't have done that. Forgive me for that. And God said, it's not about that. What it's a- Where did God say it's not about that? Hang on a second here. Um... I, I need to do a little biblical work. I'll, I'll play a little bit more, and then I'll I'll find this. Hang on. It's about his honor. It wasn't about that she ate the fruit. It was about she did not honor God. God had the tree there, not so that they wouldn't do or they couldn't do or they shouldn't do. God's not a couldn't, shouldn't, wouldn't God. But he said, I've, I've set an, a system in place so that you can make the choice of whether or not you will honor me. You see, we get so focused on what we do. Oh, man, he is just totally making stuff up. Wow. This is so convoluted. Does this guy even know how to read his Bible? Romans chapter 5, if you have your Bible, I just want to point something out here. Verse 6, for while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, uh, though perhaps for a good person. One would dare to die, but God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since, therefore, we have now been justified or declared righteous by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, so much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus through whom we have now received reconciliation. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, yet sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses on those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one to come. But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if the many died through the one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift of grace that the, uh, of that one man Christ abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of the one man's sin. 
for judgment following the one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. For if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. Yeah, I think Romans chapter 5 completely obliterates this um, false made-up theology that Keith is spinning here. I mean, he's just foaming at the mouth. Yeah, yeah, that's what it is. Yeah, yeah. You know, it's all about honor. You know, tra- sin is just trespass. Yeah, yeah. God is not a, yeah, a no God. He's a yes God. Yeah, that sounds right. Yeah. Don't do or what we do. And God said, no, it's not about that. It's about it's about honor. Where does God say it's about honor again? Yeah, yeah, you know, honor. Where is that mentioned in the scriptures again? It's about honor. Interesting scripture, and it's kind of hidden. But in 2 Corinthians, the 11th chapter, there's this little unknown scripture. Listen to this. The third verse, 2 Corinthians 11, 3, page 1421, if you've got the right Bible. Now, here's what Paul, the writer to the most spiritual church in the New Testament, the church of Corinth, here's what he said. But I fear, everybody say fear lest somehow as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, so your minds may be corrupted from the simplicity that's in Christ. Now, I want you to see this. Simplicity that's in Christ. Can I ask you an honest question? And go ahead and get ready to raise your hand because mine's already up. Let me ask you an honest question. How many of you here have had something simple in your life that you just did your best to make it as hard as you could. Man, um, first, uh, Second Corinthians chapter 11, if you have your Bible, flip over there. I'll be reading from the ESV. I want to point something out here. Let's read it in context. When somebody's quoting the Bible to you, it's always good to take a look at that passage in context. The three rules for sound biblical interpretation, the primary rules are context, context, and context. That will actually help you and keep you in many instances from being deceived. And in fact, it clears up almost 96% of all Bible twisting. I mean, just like that. In special cases, you need uh, you need some extra tools to help you out here. But in this case, context will just uh, <clears throat> come into play here. Uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 11, I'll begin at verse 1. Now, I, I wish you would bear with me a little foolishness. Do bear with me. For I feel a divine jealousy for you since I betrothed you to one husband to present you as a pure virgin to Christ. But I'm afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion or simple devotion to Christ. For if someone comes and proclaims to you another Jesus, uh, other than the one that we proclaimed, or if you receive a different spirit from the one we received, or if you accept a different gospel from the one you accepted, you put up with it readily enough. Indeed, I consider that I am not in the least inferior to these so-called super-apostles. Even if I am unskilled in speaking, I am not so in knowledge. Indeed, in every way we have made this plain to you by all things. So what's happening here in you know, in this epistle is that so-called super-apostles showed up and undermined the, uh, the gospel preached by Paul. And um, Paul here is concerned for them 
that they are being led astray to a different Jesus and a different gospel. That's what's going on here. This simple gospel is the repentance and the forgiveness of sins, the gospel that Paul proclaimed. And the Judaizers are coming in and and saying, oh, no, no, you got to be circumcised. you got to follow the Mosaic uh, ceremonies. you got to do all this other stuff. That's what's going on here in 2 Corinthians 11. And no, this is not a, a lesser-known passage. It's just that you're taking it out of context and making it say something it never was intended to say, nor does it say when you read it in context, Keith. Boy, this guy is, I mean, he's like a, a heresy every 10 seconds. <laughs> what is that about us? Have you ever asked yourself, why is this so hard? How did, how, did this, how did my marriage get so hard? When marriage is supposed to be a picture of how heaven is. How did marriage get so hard? How did my finances get so hard? How did my job get so hard? Here's what Paul said to the most spiritual church of the day. He said, I fear that the enemy, the serpent, will do the same thing to you that he did to Eve and he did to Adam, and that is to pull you away from the simplicity of the gospel. Here's the simplicity of the gospel. If you honor God, he'll honor you. Here's the simplicity of the gospel. Uh, that's not the gospel. The gospel is Christ died for our sins and was raised again on the third day in accordance with the Scripture. God has a great plan for your life, and it's all predicated on honor. Here's the simplicity of marriage. If you learn to honor, your marriage won't just work, but your marriage will thrive. At some point, it's honor that's broken, not love that's lost. Some people get a divorce, not because they fall out of love, but because somebody dishonored somebody. Somebody disrespected the covenant that they made. You see, it's usually not a love issue. Watch this now. And it's usually not a love issue with God's people either, with God. It wasn't a love issue. Adam and Eve wasn't a love issue. It was an honor issue. Listen now, I'm going to say something that might... Yet not one of the apostles or prophets say that it was an honor issue. He's just discovered this all by himself. Freak you out a little bit. It wasn't a sin issue that God had the problem with. He'd already had a redemptive plan from the very beginning. It was the honor issue. Why? Because God wants to be honored. If there's one cry of God's heart, he wants to be honored. He wants to be first in your life. He wants to be first. And there's a reason why I love what Malachi says, which is the last. This guy has no concept of what the gospel is or even what God's law is for. Wow. This book of the Old Testament. And Malachi says it this way. Verse 8. Chapter 3, will a man rob God? Yet you've robbed me. What? What do you you mean we've robbed you? He says, you've robbed me in your tithes and offerings. Oh, there there we go. See, see, honey, that's why I don't like to go to church. Because there he goes. He's he's like five minutes into it, and he's already talking about money. Well, you are in the middle of a building campaign. (laughs) It's kind of obligatory, don't you think? Look at somebody right square in the eye. Come on, look at him. Go like this. With as much as in you. Open your eyes and go, this is not about money. Okay, now watch this. Listen now. We make it about things that, that it's not. We make it about the fruit. It's not about the fruit. So he says, you robbed me in tithes and offerings. 
and you've brought a curse on yourself. I'm not going to curse you. You've brought a curse on yourself. Why? Because he goes all the way back to the garden. It's the tree of the knowledge of good and evil where, where it wasn't that they yielded to the temptation to be like God. They reasoned that it was okay to take from what God says was his. Why do I feel like this guy has had no real biblical training? I just... So look at what the Bible says. Bring all the tithes into the storehouse that there may be food in my house and try me in this. God says, prove me. You see, honor proves God. In fact, look at the screen. When you honor God, you allow God. And they're going to put it up on the screen. When you honor God, you allow God. They're going to put it up on this screen. When you honor God... You allow God to prove his godness in your life. And by the way, let me tell you something about God. What? What Bible verse teaches that? Oh, man. His godness is better than any of your goodness. Oh, did you write that yourself? Oh, man. Say, what is God's godness? Well, look at this. He says, prove me. He goes, I don't want you to honor me to prove your honor. Watch this. I want you to honor me so I can prove my godness. <laughs> oh, my goodness. This is just absurdity. And there's people going, amen, amen. I'm sitting here going, this is stupid. I can't say amen to this. This is nowhere in the Bible at all. He's completely making this stuff up. He says, prove me. He doesn't say prove yourself. He says, prove me. Prove me. Prove me in your honor. Watch what I will do in your life if you honor me. Understand that I started in the very beginning. There's always going to be that thing in your life that represents me. And by the way, Jesus said you can't serve both God and mammon. And mammon is the spirit of this world that is on money. It's not money. You can't serve both God and money. No, you can't serve both God and the way the world views money. It doesn't equate. So God says it's not about money. It's about a spirit. And that's why I've set up a system just like I did all the way back in Genesis. That, that, uh, Chuck- Where is this system talked about again in the Bible? I mean, just, I mean, since you're preaching, I mean, could you show it to us? Chuck gave me $10. By the way, Chuck's going to Hawaii. I ever, ever service, I've been taking money from him. This is all this Hawaii money. I'm taking this Hawaii money. I have a $10 bill. This is not mine. This is Chuck's. But Chuck just gave it to me, so it's mine. Now, here's my point. Do you believe, how many of you believe that everything you have, even though you think you worked for it, but everything you have because of the very breath that you breathe, God gave, gave you. How many of you believe that everything that you have, God gave you? Come on, let me just see your hands, all right? Now, if you believe that, here's what God says. Which one, which dollar in this 10 is God's? Come on, which dollar in this 10 is God's? So when we take an offering, you're not giving to God. This guy is a con artist. I, he's a good con artist, but man, oh man, this is one of the slickest guys I've seen. But he, I mean, if you saw the video of him, you'd think con artist. That's what this guy is. God, when you give him the first dollar of the 10, you're returning to God what he says is his. Look at somebody like this. Come on, look at him. Say, this is not about money. So everybody listen to me. 
God doesn't need your. It's not about money, but which which dollar out of this ten belongs to God? It's not about money, but which dollar? This is complete irrationality. Your little dollar. And our church doesn't either. We're going to build this thing. God's going to get all the glory for it. In a down economy, we're up. God's going to get all the glory. So I'm, I'm not saying any of this because we need your dollar. I don't need your dollar. God doesn't need your dollar. But you need to honor God. Because the first dollar of every 10 that you have belongs to God. And you can either return it to him. You, you can't give it to him. He said, you've robbed me both in tithes and offerings. So return to me what's mine. Now watch what he says. He says, see if I will not open the windows of heaven. This is the goodness of the godness of God. See if I won't open the windows of heaven, pour out such a blessing on you that there will be not room enough to retrieve it. And by the way, on top of all that, I'm going to rebuke the enemy of your soul on your behalf. God says, if you get that piece right, if you get the one right. If you get that piece right, if you get, that's law. If, 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 there's no gospel here. This is all just law. And it's basically tortured, completely un, bad hermeneutical law. This is an unlawful use of the law. If you get that right, then, yeah, good luck. Have fun. The bottom line is he takes care of the rest. That's what it was about in the garden. God said, it's not about eating the fruit, man. It's not about eating your seed. What it's about is honoring God. You see, if you're going to be unstoppable, you've got to choose to honor God. That's your choice. You've got to bind to that. And you can't read. Reason yourself. Paul said, I fear, I fear, I fear that the most spiritual church in the New Testament, that you will be subtly deluded in the simplicity of Christ, that if you just get that right, God will take care of the rest. How many of you know? Second uh, Corinthians 11 says nothing about money. Nothing. This guy's a con. I want you to be honest. Even if you don't believe that it really works. But how many of you, if giving God the first dollar of every 10 made everything else in your life work, your spirit, your soul, your body, your marriage, your finances, your business. If giving God the first dollar made all of that work, how many of you think it'd be worth it? Okay. Let me just tell you, it is. It is. It is. And God's looking for some people, not that will give him their money. God's looking for some people that will honor him and do life his way so he can fix the marriage, so he can fix the kid so he can fix what's broken that you can't fix. And the way to invoke the possibilities of God is when you understand it's God building the church. And if I'll just honor what he wants me to honor, the gates of hell will not be able to prevail against me and anything that... If I just honor, if... No, 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 no. This is basically saying the gates of hell will not prevail as long as you're living the perfect life that God set up for you in the system that What's-His-Face just created. Yeah. It concerns me. Come on, give God glory for that. Second thing in your notes, second thing real quickly is this. How do we become unstoppable? We choose to be positive and not negative. What a novel thought. Oh, the power of positive thinking. Yeah, because that's found in... No, it's not found in the Bible. Yeah. All the way through Scripture, it's, you're either on this side, God says you're either for me or you're against me. 
And how are we for or against God? By thinking positively? Let me just tell you something. You know the scripture. You know the story. Numbers, the 13th chapter, God spoke to Moses. He said, listen, I want you to pick me 12 spies, but not just spies. I want the leaders of all the leaders of the tribes of Israel. Yeah, because, you know, that the whole spying on Canaan thing, that was really a story about positive thinking. Right. Yeah. I want them to go up. Everybody say go up. I want them to go up because that's where you, if you're going to go to your next level, by the way, you have to go up. How many of y'all ready to go up? Come on. That's ele- Welcome to Elevate Life Church. We want to help you go up. He said, I want you to go up to a place you've never been, and I want you to see something that you've never seen before, by the way, that I've already given you. When God gave us this vision to build him a house in Frisco, Texas, we had no idea. Uh, Now all of a sudden he's exegeting the building thing at Frisco, Texas. Okay, this guy's all over the map. There's no way I could diagram this for you. That it was going to be arguably the darkest time In recent American history, that the banks would be tanking. The very bank that gave us the loan on this said, we're going to have to pull back. We we, we don't know if we're going to be able to to, to even fulfill our commitment to you. And and they were going through all this process and they were holding back. and, And little did I know what their process was. But some of the mighty men that are here, just like this last Saturday, when we gathered together, there were hundreds of mighty men that were here. Men don't ever miss it. Don't ever miss it. Get here with the mighty men. You know why? Because faith is interdependent. There's days when you're weak. There's days when others are strong. In other words, I need your faith. You need my faith. We need each other's faith. Men are not meant to be isolationists. That's why we need the whoa man in our life. Why? Because we don't do well by ourselves. But the temptation is for us to be by ourselves. But little did I know in a mighty men breakfast... There was a man in our church that already in his heart, in the worst economy ever, in the worst financial time in his life, was in a mighty men Saturday morning breakfast, was bringing a million-dollar check. And I stood up and I talked about Jimmy Dick Mills. I don't know if you remember Dick Mills. But I, I, I gave a word in, in that mighty men breakfast about Dick Mills. And Dick Mills, in 1992, before I was ever a pastor, I was running my strike force ministry and, and, and out of Arlington Christian Center there in Arlington. And I was in a, invited to a meeting with a group of pastors. And Dick Mills stands up in front of everybody and he says, God, God is giving, and he points to me, you a word. Now, all these other pastors were here, and he he turns around, and he starts walking this way. And then he turns back around, and he says, and and, and everybody here is going to wish it was for you, but it's not. It's for him. And and he turns, and he he walks around. He comes back. He's crying by now. And he says, God God wants me to tell you something. And he said, everybody here is going to, he's crying, is going to wish it was for you, but it's not. It's, It's for him. And he starts walking this way, and he comes back, and he said, stand up, young man. And at that point in 1992, I was 32 years of age. He said, everybody. Everybody here, and he gets excited, is going to wish this word is for you, but it's for you and you alone. He said, whatever God tells you to do, whatever he tells you to do, he's always going to give you the resources to do it because of your faithfulness. And he said, so build. Because of your faithfulness. Wow. What God says to build in 1992, I had no idea what God was going to tell us to build together. God is going to resource it. It's unstoppable. It's going to happen. Now listen to this. Be seated for a second. Here's what happened. Here's what happened. So I'm sharing that story at a Mighty Men Breakfast. Scott and Rod Vilhauer stand up and they're both crying. And Scott said, Pastor didn't know this, but today Rod's bringing a million dollar check. And Rod 
donates a million dollars to our church. The next Monday, our banker was freaking out in this economy that had 11 churches. In the last 20 years, they'd had two churches that folded and that reneged on loans. They had 11 in just an eight-month period. And we're this church out here in Frisco building this $28 million project. And they called me Monday. The bank didn't say, okay, we've decided we're going to honor our commitment. I said, well, thank you. They said, there's just one thing. We're going to need $1.8 more million in cash. I said, well, that'll be no problem. Because, uh, see, just Saturday, God brought a million dollars. They went, oh, well, well, let's do the loan. I believe what God says. So, so here's the deal. Listen, it's not about everybody giving a million here, although wouldn't that be nice? Come on, just say, Lord, use me. Come on, just stick your hand up. Lord. And this isn't about money. Oh, okay. Lord, now, you, you, know, you know who all the liars are. But God, there's some of these people that if you poured it out on them, they'd bless your kingdom. They'd advance your kingdom. Come on, say, that's me. You might be tested. Chris, Randy, you might be tested. Here's the point. Listen, God gives this word for his church to move forward. There's 12 spies. There's 12 leaders. They're the leaders of all the leaders. They go into the land. They go up. They come back, and here's what they say. Oh, it's true what God says. Isn't that amazing? It's true what God says. How many of y'all believe it's true what God says? Now, now, now here's the real, here's the real uh, you know, test of, of all of us. How many of you have seen what God says, and sometimes you've seen it not work in your life? Come on, raise your hands, everybody. Now, I'm just here to tell you that's our problem. Well, now, that was supposed to work, and it didn't work like it was supposed to work. And So they came back, and they said, hey, it's true what God says. I mean, it's a land that flows with milk and honey, but <laughs> there's a few problems. How many of you know there's always a few problems? How many of y'all got a few problems right now? How many of you got big problems right now? They said, there's a few problems, and they're big problems. There's big walls there. There's big people there. In fact, we, we were like grasshoppers in their eyes. We know we were. Because that's the way we felt. And so because we feel that way, we know they felt that way. The devil's going, I love it when God's people think like that. I'm singing the devil's song now. Uh, you've been preaching his doctrines the whole sermon. You, you want to make the devil smile? Just start saying what he says. Because you think it's true. That's what a lot of people do with negativity. Well, it's true. Well, yeah. They are an idiot. But they're God's son or God's daughter. So let God, let them prove to God that they're an idiot. Don't you judge them as an idiot. Even though you know they're an idiot. Part of the reason you know they're an idiot because you're God's son and God's daughter. This is all doublespeak. I mean, this guy's completely double-minded. Yeah, don't call them an idiot, but they're idiots. Yeah, that's this is just absolute satanic doublespeak. The guy's a con artist. So, all the people are going, we can't do it. We're not able to do it. Caleb quiets the crowd. He says, we are able. Let's go up. Let's do it at once. And the people go, in a loud voice, we are not. We cannot do that. By chapter 14, everything is 
they've all jumped off the cliff. They complain and they're crying. What are we even doing out here anyway? Man, let's go back to Egypt. Let's go backwards. By the way, negative always goes backwards. You see, the thing about a positive, which kind of is like our icon. I don't know if we can put a picture of our icon up here behind me. Guys, I don't know if y'all can scramble up there and make that happen. Josh is the master working working on it up there. Think about it, a positive. You know, a negative, it's a slippery slope. You start getting negative and just look at the negative sign. But a positive, man, it gives you something to grab hold to. You start going down, whoo! That's why it's stuck up like that for you to grab a hold of because you're always going to feel like being negative. And then the other thing, some people like, they just slide down. Thing sticks up. The positive is like this. Wham! Maybe I shouldn't have been thinking like that. You see, so many people go through life and here's what happens. They get negative because they don't realize that they're not believing what God says. In your notes there, how do, you, how do you be positive? You believe what God says, no matter what it looks like, no matter what it seems like, and here's why. Because negativity is a form of atheism. When we get negative, you might as well be an atheist, man. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Atheism is a... F- is, it, 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 negativity is like a form of atheism. Yeah, that sounds right. Just making stuff up. I mean, good night. What are you going to say next? That Kermit the Frog and Miss Piggy aren't really in love? Because God can't work. I don't care how much you love God. I don't care how much Adam and Eve loved God. By choosing not to honor God, God couldn't work on their behalf. They, they got stopped in the... Nowhere in the Bible does it say any of these things. I mean, this is just one crazy statement after another without any biblical passages that actually say it. ...place that was created for them in their garden, and they were cast out of it. Not because God cast them out, they cast themselves out. You have to unbless yourself. God made you in his own image. He blessed you. He wants you to make it. He wants you to be unstoppable. We're the ones that stop ourselves. So all of a sudden, Joshua next, he stops the crowd and he says, hey, listen, guys, remember, by the way, what constitutes a church? Not one of you, but two of you. If any two of you shall agree is touching anything, it shall be done. It just takes two to make up the church. I'm not the church. We're the church. So Joshua and Caleb, Joshua said, wait, listen, guys. He starts tearing his clothes off. I'm not sure what all that was about. Like, I'm going to try that. So I'm just getting mad. Anyway, (laughs) Sheila, would you like me to do that? Sure you would. You would like me to tear my clothes off? I've got got some teaching to do. Anyway. This is just a mockery. Wow. Let me get my mind back. (laughs) Anyway, so Joshua says, we are well able. We can do it. Don't rebel against God. How are they rebelling against God? They're thinking the way they think and not the way God thinks. They're believing what they believe and not what God believes. Let me tell you something so awesome about God that what makes you unstoppable is that you can believe what God says that overrides what you believe, what your mom and daddy believe, what your denomination believe, what church believes, what what politicians believe. It can override everything. Believe what God says. 
and then say what God says. How do I be positive? Just those two simple things. Believe what God says. Even Abraham said he believed against belief. He hoped against hope. He spoke against what he felt like speaking. He spoke those things that were not as though they were. That's the way it works. So this is kind of like a formula. This is like a magic incantation. And there's a system set up. And if you just tap into whatever the system is and you say the right things, do the right things, have the right attitude, then you get the blessings. You unbless yourself. And to to bless yourself again, you've got to just tap into the right things and do the right things. And it's all basically what this guy's making up. Right. And you guess what the people did? They all rose up, picked up stones. Said, we're going to kill all y'all. Joshua and Caleb, get ready. You're going to die. Why do you want to stone us? Because of what you're saying. What are we saying? What God says. It's really getting on our nerves. You're encouraging us. They picked up stones, verse 10 of chapter 14. They were going to stone them. Why were they going to stone them? We are able to kill them. God says we can do it. I'm going to kill you right here. This doesn't even make any sense. What is it that's in us that wants to justify our negativity? By the way, it's not positivity loves company. It's misery loves company. And why does misery love company? Because the truth is nobody can be negative by themselves. Just walk around going, I hate them. I hate that. Anybody hear that? I need somebody to listen to me to make me feel better about it. That's how people become negaholics. You can't become a negaholic alone. You've got to have somebody to neg with. <laughs> but you can be positive alone. You can... Negaholics. That would be negative-holics. Uh, you can be the one that stands. You can be the one that says, not my will on the cross that represents the positive. Not my will, but thine be done. The cross represents the positive. Okay. Done. Forgive them, for they know not what they do. All it takes is one to be positive. You see, we have to choose to be positive. Our natural default is negative. The last thing is this. If you're going to be unstoppable... Isn't our natural default sin, not negative? Oh, man. You have to choose what the devil means to destroy you, to destroy him. You have to use what the devil means to destroy you, to destroy him. One of my favorite stories, and again, if you're around here for a year, you'll hear it over and over. Because besides Jesus Christ himself, I love talking about his family and his great-great-granddad, David. And you know the story about Goliath. And I'll simply escalate the story that, that here, Goliath for 40 days has been just vehemently, vociferously frothing from his mouth, just 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 cussing God, cussing God's people, the spirit of the world, idiots. And David overhears it. He says, who is that guy? And everybody says, shut up. He says, no, who is that guy? And I won't tell you the whole story. I simply say, he got called before Saul and here's what he said. He said, and I think he took this stance when he did it. <laughs> By the way, what is this stance for those of you that know? What is it? What is it again? Sometimes that's what you need to do in the morning. Just get up until you feel good. Say, honey, what are you doing? Just give me a moment, honey.
this guy is a con artist. That's all he is. Man, this is just all one big con to get money. Posture's important. I dare you in the morning to get up and go, first thing. Here's what he says. Let no man's heart fail because of this uncircumcised Philistine. Your servant will go and fight him. Long story short, nobody thought David could do it. Even Saul, he tried to give him his armor. He tried. David, the Bible says he grabbed five smooth stones, chapter, uh, verse 40, 1 Samuel 17. And you know the story. But what you may not realize is he ran towards Goliath. And as he ran towards his problem, as he ran towards what was going to destroy him, you see, you know what our tendency is? It's to run away from what we perceive that's going to destroy us. It's to run away from what we're fearful of. He ran towards his giant. He ran towards what everyone else was afraid of. And as he ran towards it, here's the voice he heard. The Philistine said, Goliath said, come to me and I'll give your flesh to the birds. Am I a dog that you come to me with sticks? And he cursed David by his gods, little G. And here's what David did. You come to me with a sword and a spear and a shield. But I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day, this day, the Lord will deliver you into my hand. I will strike you and take your head off. Which represents a way of thinking. Really, uh, rep- taking his head off represents a way of thinking. Wh- who, which of the apostles uh, said that? Which of the prophets said that? Uh, I don't recall that ever being taught in Scripture. I'm not just going to kill you. But with God's way of thinking, I'm going to kill the way you think. <sighs> Good night. <sighs> I... I it, 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 I couldn't even chronicle all these guys' heresies. I mean, listening to this guy is like watching Mercury run across the table. Good luck catching it. And this day, he begins to speak back to Goliath what Goliath said to him. I'm the one that's going to give your carcass to the birds, not you giving my carcass to the birds. So that all the earth may know and especially God's people, that the Lord does save and that the battle is the Lord's. I want to prophesy over you right now. I want you to raise your right hand. Every one of you that's going through a battle right now, listen to me. Oh, here comes a prophecy. Wow, okay. It is not your battle. The battle is the Lord's. Run to the destroyer. Run into that thing. Quit running away from it. Quit avoiding it. And in Jesus' name, you're going to watch it go down. Put an amen on that, all right? Now, now here's what happened. Here's what happened. You know the story? He takes one stone, dead eye, right between the eyes. Goliath falls, and then I love this. He fell on his face in the earth. So David prevailed. Everybody say prevailed. He was unstoppable. And this is a picture of the church. He became unstoppable with a sling and a stone. He struck and killed the giant, but there was no sword in the hand of David. No sword. Who came to him with a sword? Goliath did. 
So guess what he does? He walks over to Goliath, picks up what was meant to destroy him, and cuts Goliath's head off. Then he holds up Goliath's head and says, The Lord, he is our God. He is our victor. You see, here's the deal. What makes you unstoppable is when you choose what the devil means to destroy you and you use it to destroy him. Where does the cross come into play here? I mean, Jesus, I mean, he's really the, well, yeah, it's all about you apparently. If I were to ask the average Christian, why did Jesus come? The average Christian would say, well, Jesus came to die on a cross for my sins. Yeah, you know, like the scriptures say. But what do you say? I mean, I'm sure you've received direct revelation from God that contradicts that measly message. If you ask a person who's an an unbeliever, why did Jesus come? They say, I don't know, and I really don't care. But let me tell you what the Bible says. 1 John, the third chapter, the eighth verse. The portion of that scripture says, for this purpose. Everybody say purpose. The Son of God was manifest that he might destroy the works of the devil. Why did Jesus come? He came to destroy the works of the devil again. Uh, what was the work of the devil? Think Garden of Eden, deceived Eve, Adam and Eve fell into sin, all of their relatives are born dead in trespasses and sins. Yeah, Jesus came to destroy the work of the devil, but uh, what do you think those are? Negativity, you know, keeping us from our best life and us being blessed through our seed offerings and things like that? This guy's a con artist. That's what he did on the cross. And the most powerful thing, listen to this, Hebrews, the second chapter, the 14th verse, inasmuch then as children have partaken of flesh and blood, he himself likewise shared in the same. Now listen, through death, he might destroy him who had the power of death. That is the devil and release. Cue sappy music. Those who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. What did Jesus do by dying on the cross? Did Jesus have to die on the cross? No, no, no. Did they take his life? No, no, no. Jesus gave his life. And let me tell you why he gave his life. This is what Please, I'm all ears. I can't wait to hear what you come up with. This is what separates him from Muhammad. This is what separates him from Buddha, who died of indigestion. Here's what separates him. What? Oh, man. From ever, He did. He did. They got it right. All the little things some of you got in your house, little Buddhas. Just remember, he died of indigestion. Just literally imploded. Ate himself to death. What separates Jesus from all other so-called religious leaders is that he chose to die. He chose to give his life. Did he have to die? No. He died because death was the last enemy to be defeated. So he chose to die on a cross. Why? So that he could say, oh, death, where is your, where's your victory? Oh, grave, where's your victory? Oh, death, where's your sting? You see, death for the believer, even though we don't understand it, even though I don't understand why some people died too soon. I, I, you know, this guy is treading on really thin ice. He's abs- he impugned the biblical gospel, Christ died on the cross for our sins. He's reinterpreted it now, and he's teaching a false gospel. No doubt about it. Wow.
too soon. Even though I don't understand why Jeremy's no longer with us and other people I can name. Death for the believer is precious to God. And the reason it's precious to God is because it's graduation. It's not like the end. It's the beginning. And God says, this is a picture of what it means to come to me. You die. You die to yourself. You die to your plan. You die to your way of thinking. You die to the way you think it ought to be. You die to how you think. And when you die to the way you think, you can live in me. You see, the truth is, God knows exactly where you are today. The truth is, whether you know it or not, you're his son and you're his daughter. Really, um, whether you know it or not, you are. What about um, being under the wrath of God if you don't trust in Christ? Sons of the devil, you know, things like that, you know. John 3, come to mind, hello. The truth is, he did not make you to lose. He made you to win. Ah, yeah. The truth is, he never meant for divorce to stop you or to make you feel guilty. Boy, this is the most me-centered, ego-puffing-up stuff I've heard. Oh, man, this is just an abomination. He never meant for adultery to stop you or for abortion to stop you and to make you feel shame. God never meant for anything that is the devil's plan against you to keep you from being everything that he's created you to be. Ah, so that's why Jesus died on the cross, so that you can be everything he's created you to be. Right. Be all that you can be. Yeah. And the good news today is... He's here. The good news is he's the same yesterday, today, and forever. The good news is you've done nothing that can separate you from the love of God. Uh, Except for sin. The good news is everybody here has a choice to make, to honor him, to get on the positive side of life. Wow, this is horrible. And to use the very things that the devil wants to destroy you with to destroy him. You see, the Bible says in Revelation. This is a satanic, false gospel. Wow. Revelation. They, which is us, overcame him by the blood of the lamb. And watch this now. By the word of their testimony. How do you destroy the devil at his own game? What he meant to destroy you. You destroy the I Wow. I thought Christ conquered sin, death, and the devil. Not me. I'm the guy who is dead in trespasses and sins and needs a savior. Jesus is the one who did all that conquering. I don't conquer the devil. You let that draw you closer to God. What was meant to embitter you, you let that to make you better. What was meant to cast you down, you realize that a good man falls seven times. But he gets up stronger every time. You see, it doesn't matter how many times you've fallen. doesn't matter how many times you've blown it. doesn't matter how you've missed the mark. Greater is he that's in me and you than he that's in this world. God, I just ask you by your Holy Spirit. All right, we're done.
Wow, that was worse than I thought it was going to be. Holy guacamole. Well, that's what they all have in common, isn't it? They have to impugn, malign, demean, attack, get rid of the biblical gospel. Christ and him crucified for our sins. And, uh, well, yeah, because that that doesn't do well if you're really into making a, a little empire or, you know, church building or whatever to your name. <sighs> wow. Unbelievable. I, I, I'm just absolutely flabbergasted. This guy completely made stuff up, and it was all law. And that, see, that's the thing. There's only two religions in the world. One religion tells you the things you have to do, and if you do those things, then God will bless you. The other one says you're dead in trespasses and sin, and Christ does it all for you, and you're saved by his grace as a gift. Through his shed blood on the cross for you, stop striving and receive the gift of salvation and be declared righteous on account of what Christ has done for you on the cross. That's the thing he attacked, but that's the biblical gospel. Wow. Heresy two-step indeed. And, I mean, over and again, all he did was just make stuff up. And it was man-centered, some system that he created, some honor system, whatever. And he he doesn't even live up to the system that he claimed that he was preaching. Unbelievable. Need to remind you all, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you and your generous gifts and financial contributions in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you as well as to the world. You can partner with us financially by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you'll see two friendly yellow buttons. One says donate, the other says join our crew. When you join our crew, you're signing up to automatically contribute $6.95 to the ongoing mission of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio every month. Of course, if you'd like to specify the amount that you would like to contribute, uh, you can do so by clicking on the Donate button, or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and send it to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. Wow. What'd you think? I'd love to get your feedback. My email address, talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian, or you can follow me on Twitter. My name there, pirate Christian. Till tomorrow, may God richly bless you in the grace and mercy won by Jesus Christ and his vicarious death on the cross for all your sins. Sins, yeah, that's what he died on the cross for. Amen. <laughs> <laughs> 